Well, we'll, we'll start this way, and I think, I think it's an okay way to start. Uh, we'll start by referencing the preeminent philosopher Tom Petty. Um, t- Tom Petty, he, he was once interviewed about his song, The Waiting. You probably know that song, The Waiting is the Hardest Part, is how the lyrics go. But he was interviewed about the song, and, and in the interview, he said that he got the line from his fellow artist, Janis Joplin, when she was describing her love, as, uh, her love of touring as a, as a musical artist. Uh, because in that context, she'd made the comment to Tom Petty at some point, I love being on stage, everything else until then is just waiting. So I love being on stage, everything else until then is, is just waiting. And then he goes on to write this song about that. And, and while we can't probably identify with the, with the rock star status reflected in that comment, uh, we can identify with the sentiment that's captured there in that in the waiting is difficult. Uh, as, as a kid, you remember, uh, or as a kid, you experienced looking forward to summer vacation, not least of all in the middle of February, and, and that's exactly how it feels. I love summer vacation. Everything else is just waiting. Uh, no doubt we feel that now a little bit. Uh, but as we get older, while our desires change, the, the, the weighty and real experience of waiting doesn't change in our lives. So, so maybe when the wedding date is set and we're looking forward to marriage, everything else just seems like it's waiting. Or, or when a child is going to be born for, for nine months, it can seem like everything else is just waiting. When, when we're looking forward to that promotion or transition at work, everything else can seem like it's just waiting. Uh, so, so Tom Petty, he makes a good point in telling us that that is the hardest part. The waiting is the hardest part. Um, now, now, as we've moved through the narrative of 1 Samuel, especially after David has been secretly anointed as king by the prophet Samuel, there's a sense in which this whole story has been a story about waiting. Uh, we're waiting for God's choice king, David, to take the throne. But in all the time that passes, uh, so much is going on that seems to be working against that. Saul and his old, whole army are out to kill David. Uh, they get very close to him on multiple occasions. David's uh, not even remotely on the throne. In fact, instead he's hiding in caves and he's wandering around. Uh, we recognize as the narrative goes on that we're, we're experiencing something of how the waiting is the hardest part. We, we know David is God's anointed choice king. We know that through so many providential circumstances, David has been preserved because the Lord is going to bring him to his promised place on the throne. Uh, we know from the witness of his best friend, Jonathan, that David's going to be king. We even know from the, from the wise advice giver, Abigail, that all of David's enemies are ultimately going to, be, going to be done away with. In fact, it's so obvious that David is going to be king. Saul himself, at the end of the last chapter, has confessed that David is going to be the one who prevails. And yet, with all of that, we still wonder, when will the Lord act according to his purposes for David and bring him to the throne? The Lord has said David is king. People around David, uh, in, including those who are even against him, uh, they've affirmed the Lord's royal prerogative for David's life. But there's just so much waiting. So, so what does it look like to live out our lives of faith while we're waiting? Uh, as we come into chapter 27, it's that kind of question that surfaces. What, what does it look like for David to be in a place of waiting while the Lord brings about his promised purposes in his own divine timing? Uh, it's interesting just to note that in the last chapter, in chapter 26, if you remember from our studies last week, uh, David, he referenced Yahweh, so the covenant name, the promise-keeping name of God in the Old Testament. David referenced God's name 16 times in his own dialogue. Uh, so David spoke of Yahweh many times. We get into chapter 27, 
and Yahweh, or, or even the more general name for God, Elohim, there's not one mention of God's name even one single time in chapter 27. Not once. So, so, so in a sense, we come to this and we're, we're meant to wonder as the narrative is crafted here, where, where is God? What, what, what does it look like to wait for the promise-keeping God when God's not seemingly active to bring about those promises that He said He would work? When it seems like God is, is inactive for a season, when it seems like God is, is absent from bringing about those things He's promised to bring about, what does it look like to wait? And that's exactly where David is in chapter 27 for over a year. God, God obviously is acting. We know that the Lord is always working. But in this chapter, the Lord's not mentioned. All we have is a passage of time, over a year in fact, with no apparent movement toward the throne for David. So waiting is the hardest part. What does it look like in our lives of faith to wait? And then there's all kinds of ways in our experience that, that this question can come up. We, we know God's promises. Uh, for example, we know that the Lord promises to provide for His people. We know that He'll, he'll care for us. Um, but what does it look like to wait for His timing in those seasons where we have deep and, e and even very painful material need? Waiting is difficult. Or, or we know that the God promises to give us persevering strength. We know that. But what does it look like to wait for that renewed sense of spiritual energy when we just feel weak and lethargic? Uh, we know God promises to guide us. What does it look like to wait for the Lord to bring clarity to those confusing situations where there doesn't seem to be an answer that fits? Uh, we know what it's like to wait. David knew what it was to wait. And, and maybe even this morning, uh, you're feeling the burden of that as, as, as you come here for worship. When, when will God act in my life? When will He move as He's promised to move? And then on top of that, what, what does it look like to wait faithfully in the meantime while I wait for Him to act? What does it look like to live in these kind of days? Because waiting is hard. So the Lord's name doesn't appear one time in chapter 27. Maybe it feels a bit like the Lord's name isn't appearing in this chapter of your own life this morning. We can go through seasons like that. When it seems that God's not particularly active. And in those times, what does it look like to faithfully press on while we're waiting? And that's something that this narrative comes and helps us with this morning. It helps us think through uh, this posture of, of faithful waiting and even, and even the, the extraordinary expectancy that's worked here for us as we wait in a more ultimate and final way for the Lord Jesus. This chapter comes and it gives us help along these lines. And so what we're going to do is we're going to break this chapter down into three different sections. Uh, we'll start with verses 1 to 4 uh, for our first part. Then we'll take verses 5 to 12, which brings us to the end of the chapter. It's, it's not a very long chapter. And then we'll actually come back through and work, and work out uh, some things that are woven throughout, which, which will actually bother us as we go. So I, I won't say anything about uh, some of the things that are going to bother us as we study through this until the very end. So if you think I'm skipping it, I'm not. Uh, but we'll, we'll work through this um, in, in, in sections like that. So first of all, verses 1 to 4, uh, we need to see while David's remaining far from the throne, he, he's waiting for the Lord to make a way for him. And during this waiting, what we have David doing is, is engaging in personal action. That's the first thing here. David engages in personal action. So, so verse 1, it actually begins with the only time in the narrative so far that we're given insight into David's own internal monologue. Like what he's saying and what he's thinking to himself. Now, now in 1 Samuel, we've, we've seen some things about uh, David's interior life, if we can use that frame. We've been told that he, he's been afraid. 
at times. Uh, we've been told that he was convicted. Remember how he was struck in his heart? He was convicted before he committed sin. Uh, so we've been told some things about David's interior life. And we've actually cheated and gone over to the Psalms a couple of times where we get a lot of internal dialogue in terms of what David's thinking during these periods of wandering in the wilderness. But this, for, this verse is the first time we're actually told about the inner dialogue going on in David's heart. So, so if you look at verse 1, and, and, and we'll pay attention to what David is saying to himself. It's important for us. And, and I'm going to read it just a little bit more literally to, to give you the, the weight of what's going on here. So in verse 1, uh, in, in the CSB, it says, David said to himself, which is like, oh, well, he's, he's just thinking. But, but it's a little more emphatic in that verse 1 reads, David said in his heart. So, so like the seat of his personhood, where emotions are felt, where decisions are made. David's speaking to his own heart here. David said to his heart, one of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape, escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will quit searching for me and I'll escape. So, so in Hebrew, uh, you might remember that, that because there's not really a way to highlight a superlative type, type of word like we have in English. In fact, here in, in our English translation, he says escape immediately. There's not really that, that, uh, that heightened intensity kind of word in Hebrew. And so what Hebrew does is it will repeat the important word to give it emphasis. And, and we see that in, in, in many different places in the Old Testament. The, the biggest example of that is, is in Isaiah, the prophet's vision. You remember that when he, when he beholds that glorious vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. And he doesn't just respond to that vision and say, holy is the Lord of hosts whose glory fills the whole earth. What does Isaiah say? He says, holy, holy, holy. He has no superlative to express how extraordinary this vision of the perfection of God is. So he uses the same word three times because that's how, that's how Hebrew functions. Um, repetition highlights a degree of emphasis. And so here in David's internal monologue, as he's speaking to his own heart, he says, one of these days Saul's going to get me. I must escape, escape to the land of the Philistines. So David makes this very emphasized decision that he's got to get out of the wilderness of Ziph where he's been staying and, and uh, he's actually got to get out of the land of Israel in general and go into the land of Israel's enemies, which back in chapter six, you remember, he he talked to Saul about the fact this is a real concern for him. He's going to have to leave because Saul keeps keeps pursuing him. Uh, but David does this uh, because at the end of verse one shows he's doing this thinking that, that Saul's going to give up searching for me everywhere in Israel if I do this so this will give me the, the chance to escape from him eventually Saul is going to get me if he keeps going now we read this and there's a couple things that immediately strike us uh, first of all why is David so concerned all of a sudden to escape to escape escape from Saul why is he so intensely concerned to escape um, we especially wonder that because we left things at the end of the last chapter with Saul confessing that it was actually sinful and foolish for him to be pursuing David. That was Saul's last word to David. It's sinful and foolish for me to be pursuing you. In fact, uh, he even calls David his son and blesses him. Uh, so, so how come David is all of a sudden in this place of intensified uh, fleeing from the land of Israel? Uh, but as we think about that question, we, we do know the answer to it, just as we let the, the narrative and all that's happened play out, be, because we know that Saul is no stranger to saying he sinned, but then just keep on doing what he's always been doing. I mean, this, this has been Saul's pattern, and that's exactly what's happened here again, because we see that uh, down in verse 4, 
It's not until Saul hears the report that David's in the Philistine city that he stops pursuing him. So we already know from the end of the last chapter, Saul said all that stuff, but he didn't actually stop getting after David until David went, went to Gath. Words that came out of Saul's mouth, he's going to keep doing Saul. He, he knew the unrepentant condition of Saul's heart. No matter the words that came out of Saul's mouth, he's going to keep doing the stuff he's always been doing. So in verses 1 to 4, David makes a decision for, for him, for his 600 men, and then for all the families that were with them. So really, we're probably talking somewhere in the neighborhood of two or 3,000 people in, in total who are with David now. David's going to take his group of men and their families, and they would have made what would have been about a 30-mile, fairly grueling journey from the wilderness of Ziph uh, to, to Gath, where they come into contact uh, with this fellow Achish again. And, and again, in reading this, we have one other concern. We can see why David would have, would have gone, given that Saul says things he doesn't mean and will keep getting after David and his people. We, we see that part. But even in David's fleeing, especially to leave the land of Israel, which is regularly viewed as a negative action in the Old Testament, not always, but often, why would David do this? Um, on, on a bigger scale, we have that question simply because so far, through all this narrative, the Lord has constantly delivered David from Saul in really miraculous ways even. Yahweh has affirmed that David will succeed as king over Israel and Saul will fail. Saul's not going to defeat David. And, and if that's not enough, God's own affirmation, so far this narrative has, has affirmed that in many different ways. Samuel the prophet has affirmed that David is God's choice king. Uh, we have Jonathan, who's Saul's own son, technically the heir to the throne, humanly speaking. Jonathan himself has, says, has said, you're going to be king. Abigail the wise, you know, she's affirmed that the Lord would give David victory over all his enemies. And David himself has even come to rest in this very same conclusion. Saul's not going to prevail, which is what we saw back in chapter 26, verse 10, where David says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will certainly strike Saul down. You remember that? And then he makes his list. I don't know if it's going to be just he'll, 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 his day will come or he'll die in battle, whatever it is. But I know the Lord's going to take Saul out. So all through this narrative, it has been divinely, prophetically, intimately in the context of friendship. It's been wisely uh, told to David from Abigail. David is going to be victorious over Saul. Saul's not going to get him. And not only has that been affirmed and reaffirmed for David, but David himself knows it. He's, he's made that confession on his, on, his own, on his own part. The Lord's going to take out Saul. David doesn't doubt it. So, so why is David fleeing then from the land of promise and going to stay in Philistine territory, these longtime enemies of Israel? Why is David going to Gath, it, it, that, it, which is Goliath's hometown, by the way? I mean, this isn't where he has friendly experiences. Why, why do this kind of escape from Saul, um, especially since God has promised Saul Saul won't win, and everybody else seems to know that too. Why would David do this? Well, David decides to escape because, as, as we think about things here, and especially as we even see this play out in Jesus' own ministry, David knows that God's promises function in a way that never ultimately mitigate, they never ultimately do away with our own responsibility to act. And David, David knows that. So God's promises, they never function in a way that make less serious or less important our responsibility to engage. Uh, you remember a few weeks ago, we, we quoted from Proverbs chapter 3, which says, trust in the Lord with, your own, with, with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. 
Uh, we use that proverb, and that proverb speaks against putting our ultimate trust and rest in, in our notions of, of what is best or anyone else's notions of what is best for that matter. We lean on God's understanding, not our own. But what that proverb doesn't say is forget about exercising your God-given faculties. And we know that from other proverbs, like Proverbs chapter 16, which says, the mind of man does what? You know Proverbs 16, verse 9? The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So, so what does it look like to live by faith when we're waiting for God to bring about his good promises? Well, as, as David's life illustrates here, it does not look like taking no action. Okay? Certainly, there's a time to wait patiently. We know that. But what a narrative like this does, with its, with its absence even of, the, of, the men, of a mention of the Lord, is it helps us see that while David is waiting for God to fulfill his promises, David isn't inert. He's not dormant. He's not being passive. Instead, while David is trusting in the Lord to bring about what he's promised to do, David knows the good purposes of God are to preserve him and all of these things. But while he waits, he's not sitting on his hand singing, K Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. Right? No, David has a conference with his own heart and considers the reality that if I stay, Saul's going to get me. He's going to kill me. So David gets active in a way that accords with God's own purposes to keep his life. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, uh, toward the end of his book, he speaks about God's guidance, how we think about God's guidance. And, and Packer, at that point, gives six common pitfalls when thinking about the guidance of God. And I'll, I'll just read for you number one. This is pitfall number one. He says, pitfall number one is an unwillingness to think. He says, it's a false piety, super supernaturalism of an unhealthy and pernicious sort that demands inward impressions that have no rational base and declines to heed the constant biblical summons to consider. goes on to say, God made us thinking beings and he guides our minds as in his presence we think things out. And that's exactly what David is doing here. He's trusting the Lord, the promises are true, but as he thinks things out, it's time to move. It's time to go. Interestingly, we have Jesus demonstrating the same kind of volition in his own earthly ministry. So Jesus, we know, is well aware of God the Father's plan for his earthly ministry. He tells his disciples, in fact, so often that they're extremely bothered by it. Jesus tells them, the Son of Man's going to come, he's going to die at the hand of wicked men, he's going to rise again on the third day, and so on. But Jesus knows his purpose is to pass through death before resurrection glory. He's going to be put to death by the leaders of his day. Jesus knows it. But it's a matter of doing that according to God the Father's purpose and timing. And so we get to this interesting passage in John chapter 7 where Jesus delays going up to Jerusalem during a, a festival. It's a feast of booths. He, de he, de he delays going up there because in John 7 verse 1, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Leadership wants him dead. Now, now, we know that Jesus is not avoiding death per se. Again, Jesus speaks about this so many times that it, it troubles his disciples to no end. He came to die, but he came to give up his life according to the plan and the timing of God the Father. And so what did Jesus do? He, he, well, he, he waits and he exercises himself wisely. Jesus could have gone up to Jerusalem to the feast and said in his heart, well, God the Father's plan is perfect. His, his providences are unstoppable. Whatever will be, will be. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't. 
He doesn't go up knowing that God's purpose is involve him taking wise action and it's not his time to die just yet. So he changes course. So, so Jesus demonstrated in his earthly ministry something of what's depicted here in the life of David. We may be waiting for God to fulfill his purposes, uh, but while we're waiting, we're not inactive. And instead, we act in ways that are reasonably aligned as thinking people. They're reasonably aligned with what's revealed about God's plan. God has revealed that David would be preserved. David thinks to himself, I'm going to do some preserve me kind of stuff. I'm going to go. Which is why living by faith is not a let go and let God kind of situation. Living by faith while waiting is a trust God and keep going kind of situation. We're not inactive. And as we think about that aspect of our life of faith this morning, this can, this can serve as a critical reminder for us. It could be that even in your life right now, you're waiting for God to bring about something He promises to do and it's just not happened yet. And you're waiting and it's not happening. And instead of being active, instead of moving according to the general preserving wisdom of God, instead we can find ourselves growing a bit stagnant. I think I'll just sit here unmoving until God does what He promises to do. And a passage like this comes to us and helps bring some clarity. Like David, ultimately like Jesus, trusting does not preclude using the faculties God gave us to engage in wise action while we wait for him to do what he promises to do. In fact, it is through those activities that God is working his preserving power. In David's life, he is keeping David safe, and that is connected to David's own action. Uh, and so we, we just keep this in mind. God's promises never function in a way that removes our responsibility to act. Living a life of faith while waiting involves taking personal action. And again, we just reflect on that. Maybe there's action that we need to take right now, an, an action that aligns with God's revealed word, an action that aligns with the wise counsel of godly friends. And, and, and while you still may be waiting for God to bring some unique element of his promised care to bear on your life, still right now it's a time to get going. It's a time to be active. Uh, we have those times in our lives. And, and so that's first. Uh, we need to engage in personal action as we're waiting for God to bring about his promises. Uh, secondly, these last two will take up a little less space, but secondly in this passage, we also see that living out our life of faith uh, while waiting, it involves, and I struggled with a, with a, a heading for this section, I think we'll, we'll call it, it involves exercising old obedience. It involves exercising old obedience. Um, and I'll explain that as we go here. So this is, this is verses 5 to 12. Um, in verse 5, we have uh, David and his entourage coming to Gath, where we meet Achish again. We last saw Achish back in 21, uh, chapter 21, remember, where David was fleeing from Saul on that other occasion. Although back in 21, David fled alone to Gath. Uh, but you remember what happened there. Someone recognized him as the one who killed Goliath. They actually recognized him as the one everybody was singing the song about. Saul's killed his thousands, but David's his, David has ten thousands. So, so they went to, they went to, to uh, Achish. We've, we've got David, the, 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 the mass Philistine murderer here in our town, and we need to deal with this. David, do you remember, he pretends to be crazy. He pretends to be out of his mind at that time. And Achish's response was, don't have enough crazy people around me. I don't want to deal with another crazy person. Get David out of here. So David, he ends up being able to, to, to escape. Um, 
And that, that was the last interaction between David and Achish. But now uh, David is back, and it actually seems like quite a bold move because, because between la- that time and this time, uh, there's still been some, uh, some significant fighting. David has proven himself to be quite the Philistine conqueror. However, he shows up there with Achish, and we read in verse 5 how he uh, finally appeals to Achish, uh, actually in a way that's submissive, in a way that's respected. Uh, respectful. So he, he speaks of finding favor or kindness with Achish. If I found favor in your sight, but you have to wonder what has he been doing to find favor in Achish's sight. Um, but but we can kind of start putting some pieces together here. So out of that, David then asks for a place in an outlying town to live with his group of followers. Remember, he's got a lot of people. For him to come and live in Achish's royal city of Gath, that that's just awkward. David is 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 making a ploy here to get some distance because he's got some some plans of his own, as we'll see. Uh, but David asks for this uh, country town, and, and it's, the text reads that, that Achish actually quickly agrees to it in verse 6. So that day, Achish gave Ziklag to David. So he gives David this town. It's quite a ways away from Gath. David's going to be free to move about without anybody really knowing what's going on. And Achish says, you can, you can go live there. Um, and as the narrative goes on, we see a little bit more about what Achish is thinking here. He already knows that Saul is out to get David from the chapter 21 problem. So David is on the outs with Israel's king. By the end of this chapter, based on David's activity, of which he's been lying about, which we'll talk, talk about here in a second, but, but based on that, he assumes that, that David is a total stench. He's repulsive to the Israelites. And so you've got this David mercenary figure there in, in the town. And during this time, uh, scholars point out that, that there were uh, what were known as Habiru in the land is the, is the, is the word that's used for it. It's a, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word, Habiru. In fact, it's a word that some argue the name Hebrew came from uh, because it's a word that describes groups of people that are outsiders and are even bandits or mercenaries. They're, uh, they're those that live uh, as fugitives and nomads. Uh, so we can see why that would have been attached to Hebrews, uh, just as they escape from Israel or escape from Egypt and are moving around uh, as, as nomadic people. But but this this Habiru is kind of a technical term used to describe this kind of nomadic fugitive renegade group. And and what they would do those groups is they would align themselves with another ruler in exchange for a place to live, and then they would give a portion of their pilfering to that king as as a kind of land lease agreement. So that that's very something that was quite common in the ancient Near East during this time, and that's basically what's going on here, which kind of helps make some practical sense of what's happened. So before, when David came to Gath, he was alone, presumed crazy when he was there before. He wasn't much good to anybody. Now Achish knows that David is a fugitive from the king of Israel. David's got quite the group with him who no doubt have already proved their, their battle prowess. This is an effective fighting group. Why not bring David in as a mercenary uh, and, and we can profit from him? So David, uh, so Achish gives David this town to stay in. The passage goes on. We actually see that after David's raids, he acts in this way toward Achish. He gives him some of the spoil, and that's that's how their relationship is is functioning. So that explains why we have to wonder why in the world would Achish ever let David in in the door? Why would he do that? Well, it's not as strange culturally as we as we might think. So that that helps us understand what's going on. But what's really interesting to us. Is, is that David enters this kind of holding pattern now in the land of the Philistines. Um, as verse 7 tells us, he's there for one year and four months, which is a long time, one year and four months. I mean, David's already been on the run for a while, 
And, and, and all that time, there's David still waiting for God to fulfill his promise to him and give him the throne. And all that time goes by. There's no change. There's no mention of the Lord. There's no mention of a prophet of the Lord coming and saying to David, you know, keep going. The Lord's going to fulfill his word. Nothing like that. David is just in a foreign land waiting. And what does David do while he's waiting? Well, this is where things get a little interesting. Uh, but first of all, we see that David dwells in Ziklag, verse 6, which we're told then continued to belong to the kings of Judah even to the day that, that 1 Samuel was written, even to this day, the text says. Right? And that's significant because Ziklag was part of the territory assigned to the tribe of Judah back when Israel came into the promised land. However, uh, and you can read about it in Joshua 15, Joshua 19. However, even though Ziklag was assigned to Judah, the land was never conquered by them as God had commanded. And so instead it defaulted back to Philistine control. But, but here's David actually securing a promised land town for the kings of Judah. So that's noteworthy. And then as we go on in the narrative, we read some gruesome details. But in broad strokes, we have David going out and raiding people groups that had been left unconquered when Israel came into the promised land. So, so back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 20, Deuteronomy chapter 25, that part of Israel's directive from God was that as they entered the land he promised them, which Joshua was going to bring them into, as they entered that land of promise, they were to wipe out these people groups. And part of the reason for that was because God's judgment was finally coming upon these groups. So, so these, were, these were wicked nations, they were wicked people, and God was going to use the Israelites to inflict his judgment upon them by killing them. Uh, however, Israel didn't obey. They left many groups in the land, which in turn tempted them away from Yahweh to worship these groups' false gods, and the whole thing was a total mess because of Israel's failure to do what God had said to do. However, here we have a description of David basically retracing the geography of Israel's entry into the land of promise backwards, and, and David is raiding and killing all the people in these areas, which sounds horrific, and, and we'll touch on that more in a second, but, but this was what the people of Israel were commanded to do by God from the beginning as part of God's judgment on these people groups. We just do need to have that clear in our mind, whether we're New Testament or Old Testament, to be against God and against God and against God is not ultimately going to end in peace. It's going to end in judgment. And that's what's being affected as God has commanded his people to enter the land this way. They didn't do it. But David, now he's going back and he's actually doing what the people of God have been commanded to do all the way back in that old Deuteronomy obedience passage. That's why we have to call it old obedience. Right? So, so while David's waiting, he's going back to what God said a long time ago and he's obeying that word that's not yet been obeyed while he's in this period of waiting for God to act on his, on his promises. And we'll have more to say on some of what's going on here in just a moment. But, but just here we need uh, to grasp the picture that's given here. Because while David is waiting for God to keep the fullness of his promise to him, not only is David engaging in personal action, but he's also exercising this old obedience. He, he's going back to the basics, if you like, of what God has called his people to do in the land that he's given to them. These were the directives of God historically given to his people. While David's waiting, he spends his time obeying. And there's an enormous encouragement for us in that, just in terms of thinking through the various circumstances of waiting that we can face in our own lives of faith. It may, it may be waiting for any number of things. It could be waiting for a relationship to heal. 
It could be waiting for provision to come, the job we need, or relief from health concern. As we're waiting, it's very easy to give ourselves permission to step back from basic obedience simply because we're waiting for things to be different first. We're looking for things to be different first. We would hardly fault David if we heard more of his internal dialogue during this time. And, and, he, and, he, and he speaks to his own heart again and says something like, you know, well, well, I'm here in the land of the Philistines. Maybe I'll just work on my poetry for a while. And then, and then when God finally does what he's promised to do and makes me king, then I'll go after keeping the word that he's given to us, that ancient word about dealing with our enemies. I'll just wait till then. We could hardly fault David for thinking that way, primarily because I find myself thinking that way so often. I'm waiting for God to provide for this or that. And when he does, then I'll get, the, get about the business of obeying. Until then, I'll just sit. or I'll just ignore the word for now. We can get caught up in thinking in these ways. You know, when my, when my health crisis is over, then I'll obey the Lord's word to speak with gentleness and love. But not right now. Or when that financial provision comes through, then I'll obey the Lord's word to care for those who are needy around me. But not right now. When the Lord brings me relief from my spiritual discouragement, then I'll get busy with things like self-control. But not right now. I'm too down. That's how it often can go for us. It's how, it's how it, that's how it goes for me. But that's not what David does here. While he's waiting, he's looking back on what God has called his people to do, and he's obeying. He's engaging in this old obedience, back to the basics. The things that God has said to do, I'll be doing while I'm waiting for him to fulfill his promises. So we can just check ourselves by this. In, in my own waiting, in your waiting, do we need to be renewed in the basics and the old ways of obeying the Lord who saves us? Do we need to be renewed in the old ways of discipleship? Those, those things like sacrificial love toward others. Do I, do I need to be renewed in expressing joy while I'm waiting? Do I need to be renewed in cultivating peace with those around me while I'm waiting? Do I need to be renewed in patience and kindness in my waiting, am I engaged in those kind of old paths of righteousness that Christ calls us to as his disciples? So these are practical elements to consider from the passage. Now, what does it look like to live our lives of faith while waiting? Well, there's this element of engaging in personal action. There's the exercise of old obedience. And then, and then we can just notice one final thing here. In a sense that living while waiting also involves a sense of We'll call it expectant discontent. Expectant discontent. And this is something that runs all throughout this chapter. And we see it in this way. David is God's choice king. And David's waiting for the day when he will reign. We know what it is to wait for God to bring about his promises. And, and, in, and in the biggest sense here, when we reflect on David in this chapter, as we reflect on David and his example in the, of waiting even in this chapter, David is this king whom we're anticipating this rise to the throne. As we reflect on all of that from this particular chapter, it doesn't leave us looking to David as a fulfiller in righteous waiting ultimately, but it actually leaves us discontent. Because while waiting for David to be king drives this narrative, that can't be the biggest waiting that we have to do as God's people. Because even in this text, we see we need a better king than David. And there are all kinds of indicators throughout this text that that's the case. So I'll just give you a couple of them. Three maybe. For example, David restores Ziklag to the kings of Judah in verse 6. Which on the one hand sounds like nothing but wonderful. It's great that Ziklag is going to be back now 
for this long period of time with the kings of Judah, except that, that it carries a sad tone in that there's a reference to the kings of Judah. There should be a king of Israel. Here we have a reference to kings of Judah. That means that greater Israel and the tribe of Judah are at some point going to split. David's supposed to be the king over the 12 tribes of Israel, and he will be. But ultimately, about 100 years after this story, the people of Israel to the north, the tribe of Judah to the south, they're going to split into two kingdoms. We have a little indicator of that in this passage, the kings of Judah. What in the world's going on with that? And so we see that while David may be a great king, he's ultimately not a king who's going to set up a kingdom of ongoing unity. The people of God will have a deep fissure driven between them in about 930 B.C. So David's going to be the king, but he's not the king who's able to secure the forever unity of God's people. From this passage, we're still waiting for that king. And then what about David's raids here? The geography and the way things are described in the text, referring to the, to the ancient inhabitants of the land and so on. We know David is fulfilling what the Lord commanded the people of Israel to do in the land of promise, in part, he's not actually completely fulfilling it. In fact, there's something that bothers us in that if you remember Saul's great sin, so like the red letter sin in Saul's life that was the final point of demarcation between uh, his life of what could have been faithful and ultimately God's rejection of him, that was back in chapter 15 when God had called Saul to go wipe out all the Amalekites according to that original mandate. And Saul instead didn't, but he brought back a whole bunch of the spoil. He brought back the king, but that spoil was, was mainly in the form of animals. He brought back a bunch of animals. Here we have David doing what Saul did. He raids the Amalekites and other groups, but he preserves some spoils, which was Saul's red-letter sin. Here David saves the livestock, same thing that Saul did. Remember when Samuel had to come and confront Saul? What's all that lowing that I hear? <laughs> What's going on with this? Right? David's doing the same thing here. And then we're told that while David killed the people, as, as was called for by God under that prerogative of judgment, while David did that, David's motives were tainted with political advantage, not just obedient faithfulness. So he kills all these people, verse 11 tells us, so they won't be able to tell Achish about what David's actually doing. He's got a political agenda behind the, this killing. Which brings us to something else that's troubling, which is David's deception. He, he tells Achish that he's been raiding the south country of Judah, which, which technically is true, but David makes it sound like he's been raiding the people of Judah, and he's not. He's raiding the enemies of Judah, which is great for the people of Judah, except that David's deceiving, David's lying and making Achish think that he's raiding his own people which leads Achish to, to a his false assumption there at the end that, that David's never going to be welcomed back to Israel. After all, he's been made a stench to them. He keeps killing all of Israel's people. Right? But, but David's been acting in this deceptive way to get Achish to, to understand that. So, so while David is acting in some ways that are commendable here, we read this and we think that while we're, while we're hoping in the narrative for David to be king, that's the big waiting we're doing in this story, we're, we're, we're looking forward to that promised fulfillment. At the same time, we're still left in our own lives of faith realizing that we have more waiting to do. David's a man after God's own heart. Yeah, the narrative makes that clear. But David's also kind of soulish. He can't really be the ultimate guy. We need a king who unifies God's people forever, for example. We need a king who obeys the word of God perfectly and completely. We need a king who's not deceptive, but who is entirely true. 
So, so with David, we can learn lessons in what it looks like to wait for God to fulfill his promise. But with David, we're not done waiting. Instead, we're left waiting for this better king. We're left waiting, obviously, for Christ. So fast forward down through history, and this is who Jesus is as he comes. As Jesus has proved to be the better David, we know that he's done what's necessary to unite the people of God. He's died for us on the cross, making us holy, allowing God the Holy Spirit to then come dwell in us. And what is the Holy Spirit called? What is he referred to as? Well, he's the spirit of unity. The gift of Christ to us is unification as the people of God. So Jesus is the king who unifies. And unlike David, the Lord, uh, Jesus, obeyed God perfectly. He gave himself up so that we could have that better promised land than geographical Israel. Or David's going out and he's conducting these raids. Jesus is actually the one who takes the penalty of sin to himself. He is the murdered one. And as a result, on the other side of that, we now look forward to an eternity of hope and a new creation, a better promised land, a fuller sense of total peace forever with God's people. He's the one who really procures that place for us. And then, of course, as David deceived, we know Jesus never deceived. He is truth. A false word is never found in his mouth. His word is only and always perfectly right and good and without any error or deception. And so, and so our life of faith, it's, it's centered on these different aspects. We see good examples from David here. But ultimately, our life of faith and waiting is centered on uh, looking forward to this king. And while Jesus has come and purchased the guarantee of all these eternal salvation privileges, we do still find ourselves waiting. We wait for the day when he returns to make all things new. We wait for that climactic coronation day. And so from a passage like this, we're helped in that period of waiting. To be a Christian believer means we live a life of waiting as time goes on. And as we wait, we can learn from a passage like this not to be idle. We need to engage in actions that promote God's good purposes, that are aligned with God's wisdom. God's promises never function in a way that removes our responsibility to act. We know that. And so we're active as Christian believers. And we exercise this old kind of obedience. We say, your word, Lord Jesus, is truth. It leads to life. And while we wait, not necessarily knowing what's coming, while we wait, we'll obey what you've made plain. We'll obey what you've historically called us to do. And ultimately, in all of this, we're driven forward to anticipate the fact that this Lord Jesus is the king we need and he's the one we're waiting for. And, and, so, and so this segment from the David story, it, it has encouragement for us. This morning, ultimately, what this story does is help us as David gives us an example, but it helps us not just through David's good example. It helps us be renewed in our hope for a better king. David, David's wonderful and he can give us help, but David's not the guy. Just as so much of our life is a reminder to us that there's wisdom to be had, there's help to be had, but there's no one else than Jesus who ultimately comes and brings the provision that we ultimately need. We, he's the one we're hoping and he's the one we're looking forward to. And a passage like this, it drives us in that direction. And so we're renewed in that this morning. We thank God for his word, which ultimately points us to our true king and savior as we exercise our own life of faith while waiting. Let's pray. <clears throat> so, Father, we do pray we would be renewed in this way, looking to Christ, waiting in an obedient way, waiting in an active way. Uh, we know that you call us uh, to engage meaningfully in the world around us, in our lives, to be thinking people. We're thankful uh, for the guidance that you give us. and We pray that we would be actively obedient while we wait for the return 
uh, our blessed hope, the coming of our Lord Jesus. We look forward to that climactically, and we're thankful for the privilege that's ours in knowing him. Please help us walk in his way uh, for the glory of his name. Amen.